Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long distance besties everywhere. I'm Aminatu So. And I'm Ann Friedman. This week, we are taking a break from the summer of friendship, kind of, because we have a special guest, Zadie Smith, in the house this week. Oh my God, I am fully screaming. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. How's it going over there? You know, deep summer malaise. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have some good news for you, Anne. We are taking a break from the summer of friendship this week. So uh, maybe your malaise will be slightly eased. I love the idea of me being like, I am feeling meh this summer. And you're like, guess what? No more friendships. We are on a different (laughs) route. I know. Uh, and I have to say, I'm sorry it's tough right now. That really blows. You know, it's hard for everyone right now. I, and I also think malaise is the right term where I'm like, I actually, in the day to day, I'm not like, oh, I'm doing really bad. I think it's just like there is like a pallor over everything at this stage in my personal pandemic journey and also the weather that is like converging to make it, you know, oof. Woof is the right sentiment. That's how I feel. Like I told you earlier, the Zoloft hit me just right today. So I'm feeling very um, in this moment. The summer doldrums are at ease for just a few moments. I love that. I love that. This episode brought to you by the exact right dosage. Yes. (laughs) That's right. Um, Shout out to the makers of Sertralin. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What's happening this week? What's happening this week? What a moment. Well, listen, this week we are taking a break from the summer of friendship, kind of, because we have a special guest, Zadie Smith, in the house this week. Oh my God, I am fully screaming. Zadie is the author of some novels you've probably heard of, White Teeth, The Autograph Man on Beauty, Northwest, Wing Time, and also the author of two collections of essays, Changing My Mind and Feel Free. And she has a new book out, a collection of essays called Intimations. And it is very remarkable that she was able to write in a pandemic. And the essays are all calibrated to the malaise of this current moment. I, you know, it's a very slim tome. It is uh, very, very, very much asking you to consider all of the things that are happening right now um, with the pandemic. And it was hugely helpful to me to read something that was made right now that is about right now. Uh, I also, can I just have a minute for the the word intimation or like the the very concept of this? Because I've always loved it as like, this is not the literal meaning of the word, word, but like, you know, only if you are intimate with someone can you pick up on something this subtle, you know, is sort of how I've always thought about it. Um, and I just love this as uh, as a name for a collection, and I cannot wait to read it. <sighs> it's so good. And it really is about like reflections on the pandemic and all sorts of street encounters from um, Zadie, who is someone who is so um, writes so beautifully about her own self-doubt. Mm. And I think that this moment is very much about self-doubt on a personal level and on a global level. 
And uh, I hope that it brings you like a little bit of peace and it makes you start asking different questions of yourself. I love it. My name is Zadie Smith and I'm the author of Intimations. Hi, Zadie Smith. Hi, Aminatu. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm fine. Are we pretending we don't know each other? We do know each other. Um, I'm I not pretending you? I don't know you. Okay. Yes, you know me. Of I course know we know each other. I think, you know what it is? It's strange to be performing work right now. Yes. That's, that's what's going on with me. Yes. Pretending that work is a real thing in your mind. Right. <laughs> and that, um, it's hard. you know, the plague is not raging outside right. the doors of this place. It's very strange. But here we are. Well, speaking of performing work, you are maybe the only uh, productive human being in a plague. You wrote a whole book, Zadie. I mean, it's so short. It's it barely qualifies as a book, and I, I don't, I don't even think about it as productivity. I think if you have a pathology, which I, at this point, think I have, uh, then no one should congratulate you for it. <laughs> so it's more. It was more of a case of. I was feeling so intently useless, like everybody. And I knew people who were activists. I knew people who were doctors, health workers, volunteering, all kinds of things that I don't have the temperament or the ability to do. And the only thing I can do is this. I just I just do the thing I can do that comes naturally. And that's what I did. Well, I'm glad that you did it. And there was something about reading the book for me that was really cathartic because it's obviously the first thing that anyone will read that is written in this moment, but you really make the distinction that you are writing while a plague is happening and that it's not a definitive take on, here's what it was like to live in the year 2020, for example. Yeah, I mean, I the whole idea of takes, I find exhausting, I guess. And, and, and the idea of um, expressing how it is definitively to feel one way or another is beyond my ability. And in fact, you have something to do with this book, because I remember early on when you and I were Zooming, I was Zooming with lots of different friends in different situations, both relationship-wise, class-wise, different races, different countries, different situations. And that really struck me, the differences, how there was no way of speaking of one experience and yet there was a sameness to it you know we're all on zoom we're all in this extreme situation but the particularities of being single married with family or alone a student or unemployed or and when I talked to you I was so aware of the radical differences in our situations and yet this um this kind of ambient sameness and that that is what inspired the essays really that thing of difference and sameness I think it runs through all my fiction we're all in the same existential situation but the particularities are important they're not to be ignored uh, I'm so glad to hear you say that because just even that phrase ambient sameness is so it's so telling it's, you know it's like everyone is feeling dread somehow but somehow your particular situation feels <laughs> so much more front of mind right you know in the um you write about the Mel Gibson passion meme which truly I have to say, I was not expecting to laugh when I was reading this, and there is so much humor that runs through these. <laughs> that <laughs> meme made me laugh essays. so much. I can't remember who sent it to me, but it was one of the first times that I really laughed out loud, like crying laughter. And, you know, I guess because I'm so 
tech idiotic, I have to then slowly email it to my various friends in individual emails. <laughs> full sentences. <laughs> I, <laughs> um, I have to explain. I have to explain to the audience that um, Zadie is someone who famously does not have a smartphone. I understand that you do it for these like very high-minded reasons. But the experience of being your friends with a Luddite can be very trying, I find. It's exhausting. I'm exhausting. But you are shining in the pandemic. You are shining in the pandemic because email has always been your medium. I love email. And email is the medium of the moment. So I appreciate your memes. Yes. I love email. I love to write to people. I love to hear from people. So that that part was um, saving for me. And this meme, I mean, it's... I wanted to reproduce it in the book, the photograph, but memes have copyrights, folks, which I didn't realize. Um, someone owns that meme and would not let me have it, so I had to describe it with words in a very that is yeah so in a funny. in a very beta type way. But it it was just astonishing what it expressed: this kind of fundamental difference in suffering and the inability when you're in your suffering to really cope with or deal with some other variety. And, and I, I wanted to write about that exactly that the structure of it and how yeah. how we deal with it. Yeah, you know, in that section, you're writing really about how misery for everyone is just very precisely calibrated to right. their own circumstance. Right. You know, so like if you're a single person living alone or you are a married person, you know, talking about your children like you're living in gulag. Right. <laughs> and, you know, the, the how loneliness just crops up for everyone. There was something just like very cathartic for me in the sense that, you know, I feel a very precise way about my own misery, but I am trying to have a little bit of compassion and stay open-minded for just hearing other people's expression of their misery, right. even if I don't agree with it. Right. I don't know. That that released something very cathartic for me. It, it was... I, I can't believe I'm saying this because I, I always thought it wasn't true for me, but it was cathartic for me to, to write. It wasn't only cathartic, it was... I could not write... And that's the kind of melodramatic thing that whenever I hear a writer say, it makes me want to jump out of a window. But for the first time in my life, <laughs> I, I did realize what writing means to me, that it's not um, a hobby, <laughs> which I guess I thought it was till this point, or something inessential or just rhetoric. Or to, to me, it's, a, it's really soul business. Like, I, I need it. I, I'm not very good without it. And... And that was really news to me. It's it's late news, but I found it cathartic. And I, um, I've i always found reading cathartic. I never have any doubt about that. But for the first time, I realized how, how writing helps me <laughs> deal with reality. Yeah. This is really blowing my mind that there is that there is an alternate universe in which, um, you know, you're just like, writing's my hobby and I make a living from my hobbies. That's very, <laughs> it's very like uh, Instagram influencer of you. So I, I think I always had to, to keep it at a distance. I, d- I don't know. It's something to do with my family. Like, uh, I think if you come from a working class family, particularly my father, when I said I want to be a writer, like, it's not that he objected, but it was never thought of as as work. And I think a lot of the decisions I made in my life, like becoming an academic or whatever, were about trying to prove to my family, oh, look, I've got a job. <laughs> I also have a job. I do something like other people do. And I never really was able to think of writing as as work in that way. I, I know it from, from my husband, Nick. He's the same, a similar type of family. It's probably more extreme in his case. He, he finds it absurd to walk around saying, I'm a poet. I don't think I've ever heard him say it in public. So there's a little bit of um, 
anxiety about about the status of what we do, I think, in both of us. I know. I always say I do a lot of things <laughs> when people right. ask me, which makes me sound like a drug dealer, I guess. <laughs> but it's fine. <laughs> yeah. I do things. I do things. Well, you know, this is actually making me think about you have this like very short aside about the genre of pieces of the why I write or the why write the essays in that right. um, in that family. And you talk about this one essay in particular, what is it that I'm doing anyhow? And I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little more. That's by Tony K. Bambara. It's hard to find. I think you can find a PDF of it maybe on the internet, but it was part of a early 80s anthology of working class women's writing. And all the essays in there are people like Grace Paley, Tilly Olson, there's a lot of great people in that book. But the Tony Cade essay is so beautiful to me. It's incredibly unpretentious. And one that she says towards the end of it, which is what moved me so much, she describes going back, I think she's going back to the South, to her family. And when she's there and says she's a writer, this is taken by the people in her neighborhood to mean literally you write like will you write my lawyer's letter for me or will you write to the gas board and tell them to get off my back or will you, you know as a service mm. and that she doesn't find this offensive or annoying she is eager to take on that role of being of service I'll be your writer and I, I found that vision of a writer so uh, beautiful I know it can be expanded but that idea of being of service in some sense I mean, the, the highfalutin way of, is saying, expressing what people perhaps often want to express but aren't quite able to find the language for. Um, that vision of writing is important to me. And also, Tony Cade is just funny, and she insists very much on joy. It's an essay talking about black struggle, working-class struggle, female pain, and she doesn't deny any of those things, but she's just very adamant that part of her job is to insist on joy because she was a joyful person and her writing is full of delight. And I, I just find that essay for me one of the least pretentious and honest expressions of what it is I'm doing anyway. Mm, really early on in this book, you challenge what you call the potential political efficacy of art and really try to make this distinction between labor that's done by laboring people and and art, essentially, and what it means in this time. And I'm just really curious if, you know, it's the pandemic that's bringing all of that to the forefront for you, or if you've been thinking about this for a really long time. I mean, I've, I've always found, coming from people who labored and labored heavily for generations, I personally find the attempt to describe an artist as one of that class of people as a little bit obscene. You know, the thing my prayers used to say to me when I was complaining about writing something, they said, well, you're not down a coal mine, are you? And I, I suppose that attitude <laughs> is quite deep in me. Like, I'm not down a coal mine. And I also, you know, I, I feel the same about a kind of essentialist idea of class. Like, once once I became a writer, I, I'm removed. I'm not in the class I was born in. I, I can think about it, write about it, consider it, but I can't pretend to be in it. To me, that's obscene and it's a kind of insult to people who who really labor so I, I never think of art as, as that kind of labor um, and, and I do believe in art's political efficacy but I know that it is often 
indirect and strange and you can't set your watch by it. I, I know that my political imagination and my life has been constructed from the books I read, but it's not a direct process. It's very strange and wavering. And some of the things are not, the books would not seem political. Like if I think of a book like, I don't know, childhood books like The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, which many people I suppose see as a kind of Christian allegory. But to me, there is a structure of justice in that book, which formed my childish consciousness. You can't call Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe a political intervention, perhaps. It doesn't sound like one, right? It's not like reading Baldwin. But books like that also have a role to play in the development of consciousness, which then goes on into the world. Mm. That's always what I'm thinking about when I'm writing. I would never call myself an activist. I know everyone loves to call themselves an activist today. I know I'm not one. I don't have the temperament. But I'm interested in forming, or helping to form a consciousness that can go out into the world and do things. I'm not much of a doer. I know that about myself. But I'm interested in people who are. You know, early on in the pandemic, I think probably the first week you emailed that you had been reading Marcus Aurelius. Oh, yeah. I told which, you that, yeah. You know, I was like, ugh, I guess I have to read this again. <laughs> and, and I did, you know, and it was psychologically, it was very interesting for me because on one hand, it was like, yes, stoicism. This is this is what I <laughs> this is what I need right now. I need to to understand the dichotomy of control. What's, you right. know. What's, what's up to me and what isn't up to me and also learning how to just, you know, be a human in the face of suffering. And so on one hand, I think there was something just like very soothing to the brain about that. Yeah. Like, yes, people, humans have gone through plagues. And there was also something else about it was still not connecting all the way for me in the sense that I was having this, you know, maybe very modern person, like useless modern person experience of, well, you know. I'm in New York. My life is hard, but I am not suffering. Someone is suffering more than me all of the time. And also the, the plague just feeling so far away. Right. Even though I, would, I could hear the sirens, even though people in my family have had coronavirus, there was just something about it that felt so emotionally removed. And I don't, I don't quite know what that is, but I'm just like, I'm wondering like what your experience of reading, um, of reading this in, in the pandemic was. The first thing was something probably quite childish, but that which I never stop being amazed by, which is the idea that someone thousands of years ago is talking in my ear. Like I, I find it impossible to get over the miracle of that fact that I, <laughs> I am having this intimate feels to me like conversation or at least taking in somebody's monologue of someone dead longer than I can imagine. That part always is stunning to me. So I, 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 that was the first thing. And then there's something about the way he speaks, which is so unlike most of the writing we read now is that he is aware that he is writing for no one. And so he's telling the truth. And I thought, have I ever written in a way that is for no one? That I don't even have the imagining of a, a reader or an audience. What would it be like to write like that? And that's really what I sat down to do. I, I really, when I started, had no conception of publishing. I just thought, <laughs> in a very childish way, if this is going to be the end of the world, why don't I just write down the truth, the whole truth? as it strikes me and see how it feels to do that. Um, 
And that was very liberating and very uh, cathartic. Um, and then, as you say, the thing about limitation. There's always a suspicion, I guess, with Stoics that they are politically dangerous because they speak of limitation. And when we're in politics, we, we don't like to be reminded of human limitation, limitations of perfect states or rulers or citizens or anything. Um, but, but I don't really see it that way. I think uh, a sense of limitation is a, is a protective thing. I'm scared, I suppose, of people who, who think of human lives as limitless and as states as limitless. Um, Aurelius is asking himself, what good can be done within this area? What capacities do I have? What do others have? What do I owe others? What can I not achieve? What are my weaknesses? What am I not able to do? And I found all of that um, useful, particularly in a world where you have such an extraordinary amount of information coming at you and, and this supposed responsibility, which is entirely fake, but given to you by the tech companies that to be a good citizen, you must contain every nudge, every notification, every news cycle in your brain. It felt wonderful to listen to someone who says, no, you have certain duties that accrue to you that only you can do. And there are other tasks that are to be done by others. And knowing the difference is, is one of your tasks on earth. Mm. So much of what he is asking himself is really what virtue has nature given me to deal right. with this situation, which then, you know, you then have to ask yourself, how do other people cope with similar challenges? Right. But the flip side of that question is what skills do you lack? What things are, right. what things are beyond your capacity? It's very hard to answer that honestly, right? When you're young, you don't really want to hear that question. The older you get, even if you don't want to hear it, other people make it clear to you, your friends, your <laughs> family, clear. Very your clear. children will let you know that you are lacking in many places. And knowing those places, understanding them, working around them perhaps is important. To me, that, that's a lot of what writing is, knowing what I can't do, what is not within my capacity to do, and understanding what I what I can manage. Um, so yeah, that was helpful to me because I was in a complete um, state. Like I think for the first weeks of the pandemic, no one could be more ashamed of themselves than I was. I had no ability to cope at all. No backbone, no, none of the spirit that you saw in other people. I, I, I really saw my, all the ways in, in which I'm not courageous <laughs> to put it. You know, it's it's so it's interesting to hear you say that because obviously the you know the common uh, refrain the the slogan of stoicism is basically that fear does more harm to us than the things that you're afraid of, and as someone who you know um, was in dialogue with you in those first early shameful weeks of um, <laughs> of coronavirus because I feel the same way as you do. You know, it's interesting to me that that is how you would describe yourself, because I think that for so many people in your community, watching you work, that felt courageous, you know, and saying, but it, okay, but if it's some, we're, all, but if, we're all basket cases, no, but you but are showing up it, to if the it's desk to do something. something that you can't, you know, a real achievement for me would be to sit in uncertainty and pain and fear and just deal with it. I can't do that. Oh my God, who can do that? Uh, write, writing, for, writing for me is a coping strategy. That's what I mean about not, it doesn't, <laughs> congratulations. It, it's something that I do to protect myself from perhaps, I don't know, being in the world or feeling things. 
so that it's strange, right? There's a lot of artists like that, I think, actors particularly, writers to a lesser degree, perhaps visual artists, who get rewarded and congratulated for things which are really uh, symptoms, <laughs> Resp- responses <laughs> to pathological situations or poor childhoods or whatever. So I, I, I've always had a very conflicted uh, relationship with being rewarded for a symptom. Um, so so f- for that reason, when I was writing this book, I had to kind of construct it it differently, know that um, it, that the book in some way would be a gift, that it wasn't going to be for me. Yeah, it had to be that way. I do love that all Stoics call, um, you know, unhealthy emotions, passions. (laughs) This is very, um, shout out to the word uh, pathos. That is just like generally very funny for me. Let's take a break. Tell me where you are right now. I'm in London. I left New York. How does it feel? I came home to my neighborhood, so I'm around the corner from my mom and my brothers. Uh, I just wanted to be home, and I felt such a strong instinct to be in in my city. <laughs> and I, it, it kind of took it took the virus to make me realize which my city was. I, I love New York, but um, I wanted to be home. So now I'm here, and it's it's kind of a shock. It's like, it's a, as everyone who's spoken between England and America knows, I mean, they're both, is it fair to say, disaster areas in, in their situations? I think one place is more of a disaster Yeah, you, I, I give other, you the so. number one prize, but <laughs> in the European context, Britain is the idiot child of this situation, um, and it, right, it, both it, have leaders with bad hair. That's right, fair. And it, they have the same hair. It's so interesting to see, for me at least, maybe it's a difference of the people I know in America and England. But in America, the disaster was at least being prosecuted. Like people were aware of a disastrous response and angry about it. And I was so struck coming back to England at that at the height of it um, when the deaths were highest. That there was still this very British sense of you know, it's nobody's fault, we'll muddle through. And that that really struck me. It's only really now that, that a reckoning is, is happening and people are trying to ask themselves, why is it so much worse in England than other European countries? How did that happen, you know, given the scale of our population? How, how are we so much worse than Germany and elsewhere? But uh, there is a kind of paternalistic thing in England where there is more faith, there's more faith in the government, no matter what. And I was very struck by that even if it's misplaced faith. I'm happy that you're home because I, you know, I think that you're right for those of us who are from a lot of different places. This solidifies like where home is for you. And I have been really surprised the feelings of home that I feel towards New York. I was like, okay, if I I have... That's wonderful. I know, but it's strange. It's very strange because I don't think that it's, um, you know, if you had asked me even 
like a couple of days into, you know, the, I feel like that first week when we all hunkered down is like, that is a week I never want to relive again. No. Just the fear and the uncertainty and just, it just felt like time, time was frozen and suspended. And it was really, it was, it was not great. But even early on in that, I think that if you had asked me like, where in the world do you want to be? I would have never said New York. And with the hindsight of a couple of weeks, it's just so clear to me that this is my home. It's a really intense feeling to know that as an adult, like yes. especially for someone who has just traveled so much and, and bopped around so much. I was like, oh, this is this is my home. I'm happy here. New York loves you, Aminati, as well. Right back. So that's ah, good. Well, may- maybe one day New York will be back. <laughs> <laughs> at the moment, they're at the beach, but when they get back... <laughs> Oh my gosh! Maybe <gasps> maybe one day we'll go we'll go to lunch again. Oh boy. Who knows? Who <laughs> knows? Who knows? Um, what what are you watching right now? What are you reading? Ooh, what's like? Ooh. What's on your what's what's on the docket? I'm watching. I may destroy you. I guess like everybody. Ah. Uh, um, I, I didn't watch it for a long time because Michaela, I know her a little bit just on email. I have never told her this, but she looks exactly like my mother at the same age, like twins. So I just found it really traumatic watching Michaela in anything. I just couldn't. It was always too much for me, particularly in Chewing Gum where she's in the housing estate and it was literally like look, watching my childhood. So I, I always found her very intense to watch. Anyway, she's an extraordinary actress, but with the my mum vibes on top, it was a little much, but then I decided to sit down and watch it. And I've just, I'm it's just, so I'm only on the fourth episode. I'm, I'm just curious about it all. I'm so interested in the dealing with technology, the relationships, the friendships, the also the picture of like uh, black London at lots of different class levels. I've been away for 10 years. So it's really interesting to me to see like middle-class black lawyers and young kids going to clubs. And the whole scene is completely different from the way I remember it anyway, when I lived here. So, so it's just, I, I'm loving it because I'm just fascinated. It's a lot of input for me. Ah, I love that. Um, did you watch Normal People? Oh, Sally is a good friend of mine, and I have to confess I have not watched it because watching shows about incredibly happy young people having lots of sex when they're young is really hard when you're 44 in lockdown and depressed. <laughs> so I, I have not done that yet. I just felt like, do I need to okay. add these people's happiness to my life? No. But I love the book. The book I, ad- you know, I adore the book. But I just wasn't ready to actually see wonderful young bodies frolicking. In, but I just, I don't need that right now. Sorry, Sally. Okay. I would not say that they're happy. But I think that um, when you're ready to watch those sex scenes specifically, I want to talk to you about the sex I can scenes. see, I mean, I see how beautiful they are. I've seen still pictures. I just, it's too much for my heart right now. I can't. And like talking to other middle-aged people, I know I am not alone. They all want to watch it, but they're like, oh, God, really? It's too much. It's, Enjoy your lives, it's, young people. Yeah, Run around. Have fun. It's intense. It's intense. Listen, some... Just don't tell me about it. Some young people are having lockdown sex. Some young people are right, not. Right, that's um, true. I guess that, we'll find out. Some, I, I guess we'll find out. That makes me feel better. I like to know that. I like to know <laughs> that you're all miserable as well. Um. What kind of TV are you like? Do you enjoy watching generally, though? Oh, am I a bit of a snob about telly? I, you know, I, for me, it's so it's so boring. But things like Sopranos, The Wire, like that is the greatest TV I've ever known. So I find it hard to watch things that aren't as good as the things that I loved 
in the 90s, early noughties or whatever. But I do have a weak spot for comedy. You know, if it's funny, I'll watch anything funny. I'll watch network comedy. I'll, anything funny is is for me. But I can't watch crappy <laughs> dramas. I'm, I'm not. I don't really watch reality television apart from whatever it is, six series of Alone that I've watched with my husband now because he likes Alone. Though sometimes oh he God, says, do you know what? I just want to watch Alone, Alone. <laughs> and then I have to find something else to watch. Man, this is something that I don't oh. understand. In mar- in marriages, do you have to watch shows together or is it okay to watch the same oh. show but separately? Or is this like a I mean, of- you can get involved in a show like Nick is involved with Alone, so that can be his thing and he can watch it. And I could watch Insecure alone, you know, for a few seasons. Like, you can have things that are separate. But, yes, mainly the, the boring, obvious rule persists that if somebody watches something without you, without telling you, it's it's a little infuriating. Wow. I don't think I could be married. I could share anything except for television. It, it can so be annoying. But with a, with a show, like, and if, for me, like, Game of Thrones is, like, a wonderful, that was a wonderful four years or whatever. <laughs> That was a great time in my life. <laughs> but you have to wait a while for these things to come along. You you are a wonderful person full of contradiction. This makes me really happy. <laughs> I'm going to curate a list of reality television for you just to watch. Um, I can't, then, I can't, uh, because the thing I don't understand about reality television, maybe I, I can't understand the innocence of our relation to it. Like... People analyze it and they take it apart and they think they are knowing towards it and yet they never seem to wonder why there's a camera inside the house when the other person comes to the door and and they act surprised. There's two cameras on either. I don't understand that. I don't understand how anyone can tolerate that level of obvious nonsense. Well... That, I think that that is, uh, you have unlocked the key to the fascination of the whole thing, is that there are some people who watch and are horrified, like you are, and still watch. And there are people who watch and never interrogate those things. And we have to breathe oxygen with everyone involved. It's insane. I mean, th- that all said, of course, I, I watched Love is Blind, and I loved it with my, all of myself. <laughs> so let's not say that I never me, go near that- these things. It's not true. That makes me really happy for you. I want to go back to the book. Yes, sorry. Don't be sorry. We love a digression on on Call Your Girlfriend. But um, back to the book. Yes. You are donating the proceeds from the book. Why are you doing this? Just for the kind of reasons I described, I I just wanted to do something. That's the best way I can put it. The only thing I can do is write, and that's not, Sadly, not a humble brag. It literally is the only thing I can do in life. And so the only way writing could be productive is if it it's, makes money and, and this will make money. And that's so that's it. It just seemed an obvious thing. I, there's an idea in, you know, in Islam and used to be in Christianity, but it's kind of faded. But the idea of the tithe where you just, there's just a section of money that just goes from you. 10% of your earnings, I believe, is the original idea. And you don't, it's mm-hmm. not a, you don't even have to think about it. It's just a thing that is done. I, I like structures like that where it's just, it's not a moral question. You don't tie yourself up in knots. It's just structurally there. That's how royalties can work. So that's that's just how it's going to be for this book. That makes me happy. What are the organizations that the money is going towards? Um, it's going to the Equal Justice Initiative and to the COVID-19 Fund in New York. And then I, guess I thought 
depending on how long it's in print. It would just be a book that always does that because I guess one of those charities hopefully will not always exist. But I like the idea of a a book that does something for its entire life for as long as it's in print. It, it, for me, it, it made it, um, it just created a clarity when I was writing it. Like it, it felt like work. It, I was doing something for a reason. And, and I, I, that's, that's useful for me when I'm writing. The hours that you spend to writing, were those like easier hours than the rest of the, the dreadful time that we were all having? Or did it feel really urgent and hard also to sit down and just actually write? I mean, first of all, I should say that none of it would be written without my husband, Nick. I couldn't, it just would have been impossible. In, in the first few months, he took the bulk of the home schooling and then we swapped so that he could work on his things and his job. But uh, that's a really good question. I, I was aware when I went downstairs and put earphones on and tried to block out the noise of the kids that however tricky it is to write something, it's easier than all the complexities that go with human relationships. It's far easier. Anyone who tells you the opposite is lying. <laughs> the human relationships, if, to be, do them well, it's the most difficult thing I know. And at least when I was downstairs, I was in control. That's really what it's about, right? I was in control of the sentence, the paragraph, the page. I could make it work after some struggle. And none of those things are true in the world of human relations. There's no control, really. And there's no, there's no end point. And there's pushback from the other side. You know, it's a two-way street, human relationships, writing... Of course, there are readers and responses and all the rest of it. But it's not the same as a dynamic human relationship. That's just way more complicated. Yeah, that's true. How are you handling all of your other human relationships in the pandemic? Like, how are you keeping up with people? Are you feeling stretched about, you know, the fact that there are people that you can't see in person? How, you know, the question is, how are you doing friendship in the pandemic? I don't know what... I, well, I I have to ask you. I mean, when we were in New York, I I looked through my diary a little bit, like a few weeks into the pandemic, just to see what I would have been doing. And I have to confess, it looked like the schedule of a sociopath. Like, there's so I was out constantly. I seemed to always be out. And a few months into it, I couldn't really remember why I had to go out that much or. I guess why I had to go out drinking that much or a lot of things seemed a little strange to me. Um, and I'm, I am loving seeing people, but it does feel like a lot suddenly you know, just to see one person seems to be very intense or just to have one appointment in a week seems overwhelming almost. Um, Exhausting. So the whole thing is, is recalibrated. I, you know, it's all the usual cliches. I, I really am trying to be more present for the people that I love. And I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not writing at all. I I don't think I'll be writing for a long time. Sorry, my publishers, I hope they don't hear this, but I I really want to (laughs) experiment with, you know, living and and just being present and seeing my friends and seeing my family. And, uh, I, I I feel like I've, I've done a lot of my work. That's the best way I can put it. I've been working since I was quite young, and, and I, I'm sure I'll write again later, but for the moment, I, I've written pretty much what I want to write. 
I'm done for a bit, I think. Wow. I, you know, I think you, I think you deserve that. I, I have this very overwhelming feeling of, um, like you describe looking at the, you know, it's like you look at the, the diary and you're like, oh, here are all the things that are falling off. Some things I'm not sad about at all. Some things I'm genuinely sad. Like we will, we will not see Stormzy. <laughs> we were meant to see Stormzy. Uh, That's actually one of the few things I was sad about. I wasn't sad about I'm dinners genuinely and lunches, but that, that, yeah, that would have been epic. You know, like experiences like that. I was just like, okay, I like that concert did not happen. Yeah. There there are things that I genuinely miss and there are things that I do not miss. But I think that an overwhelming feeling that I have is will my world always feel this small? You know? And I think I that, that is that is a question that keeps me up at night because I think that part of the you're right, it's like some of the stuff was useless and I, I don't miss the the stuffy dinners or the, you know, the like vapid things. Um, but I did love all the frankly, people. I, I can't. I mean, I like people. I like yes. being around them. I do miss that. I miss that a lot. I miss meeting strangers. Yeah. You know, I miss just the social interaction that you, you know, the it's so cliche to say, but in New York, there is a kind of magic of uh, you could really meet anybody that day. I mean, that, that's what and Nick said to me yesterday. That's it. That's it. I like I love London. I'm not here to say a bad word about London. But the truth is, when you're in New York, you don't know what's going to happen next. And the people you meet are extraordinary. I have met extraordinary people in New York, like for 10 years. I don't have any, uh, I don't know how to say it. I, I don't have any boring friends in New York. I don't have anyone <laughs> who's going to talk to me about a kitchen extension or what school they're going to go to. I don't know any boring people. I only know amazing people. And it's I've been so lucky that way. I just, I got yeah. really lucky. I loved, I loved my community. I loved everything I got out of my students or everything they explained to me or re-educated me about. In the end, it was all just so engaging and exciting. So that that's, yeah, it'll come back, man. It's, it's just, this is a quiet moment. It'll come back. It'll come back. Different way, it'll come back. I don't but know if I'll ever get dressed like- the same way again, though. I took a glimpse at my wardrobe before I came home and I was like, is this stage wear? <laughs> <laughs> was I in a show? What is this? I've been wearing played for like three and a half months. I don't understand what my wardrobe was about. I can't. I can't explain it to you anymore. Your wardrobe is great. I mean, I'm going to send you a picture of my closet because it's empty. I've sold most yeah, of my clothes. I, I don't need I my clothes anymore. I don't. Look at that. I don't need any of those shoes. I'm never wearing them anywhere. Oh, the shoes. Most of my wardrobe is sequins. Why? Where am I going to be wearing those two? <laughs> is that the thing that whenever you're in a fancy-ish store, you're like, yeah. oh, I might need a sequin I, one day? Is that what you just pick up? Sequins, jumpsuits, absurd heels, capes. I own a lot of capes for a, a person <laughs> who works at home. <laughs> I'm just imagining Literally. you in a cape at a desk writing intimations. It's like, just, here's my work it's cape. insane. You would not... I don't know what my wardrobe is for, so... That I can't imagine ever coming back. I can't buy clothes anymore. I can't even think about it. Just the whole thing seems absurd to me. So I I might be done on that front. Very, very early in lockdown, I had ordered all these clothes that showed up maybe day four or five of pandemic. (laughs) And I didn't open the box for weeks on end because, you know, you had to Lysol it down. You're like, who knows what kind of COVID is in there. 
And when I opened it up and it was just this like frivolous fashion, like a life that will never come back. Oh, it I cackled for maybe 20 minutes and it was the it was the saddest, happiest day of my life of just understanding that that like this life is buried and done. And something new will come and maybe that'll be exciting. Um hair. Sorry, I was just thinking about things that are <laughs> my hair. I'm going to the hairdressers on in two days for the first time since it all Wow. Kicked off. How is that working in London? Do you have to wear a mask? Well, I don't know. But I'm just having an afro trimmed. <laughs> I'm not having any treatments done. I just need it trimmed into a circle because it's grown into strange shape. Looks like an I, do you braid your own hedge. hair? I've been I try and just cane row it and put a scarf on at night. That's about as most much as I can do. I'm not a good braider. So and I I wanna just wear it out, but I, I think you can cut it into shape. It has dawned on me at this late stage in my in my fro development that I could trim it into a neater shape than it is. Not me, my friend. My two um quarantine things that I'm trying to learn so that I can be a a better person in the in the world after is I'm learning how to drive and I have to learn how to braid my own hair. What do you mean braiding? How like close to the scalp or what do you want to do? Yes, like close to the scalp or also just learn to do um like box braids because oh, yeah. I was never at the black girl life school. I never learned that. My sister is like incre- like she can braid like she is having no problems not going to a hair salon in quarantine. Because she's just, she's like, I've learned these like essential black woman life skills. You have not. So good luck to you. Even, even like, twisting it at night is a good thing. On. You could just twist it. Sorry, this is not your podcast. It's not for this information. No, it's for, it's literally for this. Listen, I, um, I've watched 17 YouTube videos. Oh, I don't find it's them helpful. It's just not my. It's not helpful. It's not my life skills, Zadie. It's not my life skill. And also you just have to commit in your mind, like to doing it every night. Like it's quite a lot of time. It takes me about half an hour to get it together. <laughs> My arms hurt. It's okay. I'm going to be an excellent driver. Braiding is something that can, wait, can wait for another time. We can get one of those hot boys who braid your hair for you. I've seen it in the video. <laughs> I don't know if it actually happens. Okay. Does it happen? It'll happen. Sadie, I'm really happy I got to talk to you. I'm looking forward to other people reading this book. It is out wherever you buy books. I'm just happy that you've contributed something that will last a long time. Like this will this will withstand the pandemic, and so I am. Well, none of us know that. Just but very I, excited. But I'm I'm glad you Listen, read it. The book will. Thank you. We won't. the The book will, but we no, won't. no, we'll um, do. So yeah. who knows? Love you. We are we are doomed. But I love you very much. I hope that you have a lovely rest of your day. Thank you. And um, do something nice for yourself today. You too. And we'll see each other. Very soon, very soon, I hope, my friend. Bye, love. Oh, the iconic Zadie Smith on our little podcast. I can't even believe it. I'm still processing this. What a what a time. What a time to be alive. It's true. If anything can cure my pandemic malaise, it is listening to you talk to Zadie Smith. You know how I love an episode where you do the main interview. I can actually listen. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's how I feel, Anne. I love it when you do the interview. I can I too can actually listen. We'll be back next week with a few more Summer of Friendship episodes to close out the summer. Before we go, we want to recommend a podcast to you, Skimmed from the Couch. We all have career questions. Each week on their podcast, Skimmed from the Couch, the Skims co-founders and CEOs Carly Zakin and Danielle Weisberg go deep on career advice with the women who have lived it. 
Hear from leaders like Sheryl Sandberg, Taraji P. Henson, Carly Kloss, and Susan Rice as they talk about the good stuff, like hiring and growing a team, to the rough stuff, like how they lead their teams through times of crisis. Skim from the Couch is like a 35-minute crash course in business every time you listen. Tune in to learn how to negotiate in the workplace, how to look for and land a job, and how to build your network, even if it's a virtual one. Find Skim from the Couch wherever you get your podcasts or at theskim, that's with two M's, dot com. See you on the internet, boo-boo. See you on the internet. You can find us many places on the internet. Callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, we're on all your faves. Subscribe, rate, review, you know the drill. You can call us back, leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. And you can buy our book, Big Friendship, anywhere you buy books. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. We have editorial support from Laura Bertacci. Producer is Jordan Bailey. This podcast is produced by Gina Delvac. <laughs>